coming up in this episode. The NPS score, which I have a particular hatred for. So if I go for a restaurant meal and I go, yeah, that's pretty good, because I'm a Brit, I don't go, that was awesome. Eight out of 10. The North American business appears to be doing a better job of satisfying its customer. And I've not yet won the battle with my global marketing friends because they see higher numbers. They're, they're saying, yeah, we did a great job, we delivered it on time, so we've got nine and a half. Okay, well, a, a Brit's going to give you six or seven because that's what they expect. That was Nick Taylor, European Marketing Director at Emerson, talking about Net Promoter Scores, or NPS for short. He's joined in this episode of Marketing Trek by the owner of consultancy Think Direct, who's also a trainer, mentor, non-executive director, podcast host, and all-round marketing guru Shane Redding, and by equally talented founder and MD of customer experience experts Reynolds Busby Lee. And of course, you are listening to Dominic Hawes, and my co-host is Simon Quarrenden. These days, we're all massively over-surveyed. Now, I get why companies are obsessed with the happiness of their customers, but is sending another survey the best way of finding out? If you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll know that I have a major issue with both CSATs and NPS scores. That's Customer Satisfaction Surveys and Net Promoter Scores. But as sceptical as I am, stick with us, because our guests today have huge experience in this area. And just by listening on, you're going to hear stuff like this. How a global service business manages issues around data robustness and statistical relevance. The importance of verbatims in surveys. How social media can add flavor to statistics. How video can help explain results to non-marketers. Why customer voices have to be heard in the boardroom. And how cultural differences can skew survey results. And believe me, there's loads more too. Look, if you know everything about surveys, you can probably save yourselves half an hour by switching off now. But if you don't, this could just be the best 30 minutes you'll commit to this week. So without further ado, Shane, why do you think so many companies get it wrong with satisfaction surveys? And what's this cult-like following of NPS? I think I'd almost answer your question with another question, which is, what's the point? I see people using CSAT and NPS and other measures of customer satisfaction without really a true understanding of why. What's the point? What are they trying to change? This is, to me, the fundamental part that I'm really interested in discussing with everybody on this podcast, because the reason you're doing it, that goes to the heart of it for me. So, you know, starting point, NPS is used by companies around the world because it's a common measure. But it's a common measure of what and is it helpful? Is it useful? And is it going to transform your business? In my opinion, no. Well, that's pretty clear. Thanks, Shane. Elaine, you're the voice of the customer. Any business that's good at marketing knows they need to be market and customer oriented, which I guess really means knowing what the customer wants and thinks. Now, I've suggested that businesses are getting CSATs and net promoter scores wrong. So why are businesses using these methods? Well, I have to say I'm with you both on this, but um, in terms of what our clients talk to us about and what they're trying to achieve, partly it's because everybody else is doing it and it seems like it's the right thing to do because, oh, I come from this organisation and they had this as their NPS score and it's a way of being able to judge our performance against others. However, Shane is absolutely right. If you don't know what you're measuring or why you're measuring or what you're going to do with it, don't bother measuring it. Because what are you going to do with the results? You just cost your business a load of time, money and energy 
and you have no discernible output from that that is usable to move your business forward. If you want to understand, and it is important, I think, to understand what your customers are thinking, feeling, and trying to achieve when they interact with your business, there is real value in doing that. But I think there are other ways to do it than just looking blindly at one number in a survey on a regular basis. Okay. Nick, in B2B, particularly with the kind of uh, big scale automation services that Emerson operates, I can't believe you're going to send your clients an email asking them to score you on a scale from one to 10 saying, how likely are you to refer us? Yeah, it, it is tricky when you're in B2B. And just to put a bit of context around it, we might sell somebody something for $500 that we deliver in 48 hours that's bought by a recent graduate. Or we might be working with a project manager at an oil company on a three-year project that was $50 million. So quite different. To ask them the same questions is, is a little bit tricky. I guess what we're always trying to do is find something where we can act. We're a control company. We would like to say you can't control what you don't monitor. So we like to monitor things so we can then go and act upon them. So if we find that deliveries are a problem, then we can go and fix that. So that's that's our primary motivation, which sounds terribly obvious, but we're a big and complex organization. We're looking for those things that cause our customers pain in the way we work with them and try and improve them. And it could be order handling. It could be how difficult it is to get a quote. Honestly, we're not as bothered about product quality. Obviously, we like to know if there's a problem, but people tend to tell us that. We're interested in the soft stuff around it, the whole delivery experience. So we, we definitely think it's worth asking. I think where we struggle is what we do with the results. Let's come back to that one a little bit later. But, but first, Simon, you and I were talking before we started recording the show about this whole subject matter. And you raised a really good point about how robust data is. Do you maybe want to talk to that? Good afternoon, everybody. Simon here. Um, yes, we use Metro Bank, and uh, I'm not going to take up time on this call talking about the ins and outs of Metro Bank. Suffice to say that every time I visit our bank uh, online, I get asked to take part in a survey, and not surprisingly, I always decline. Now, I'm sure that I'm not alone. So my question really to the panel is, the organisations are doing the right thing by giving us opportunities to give them feedback. But I suspect that they've got such small sample sizes that is it really worth it and is the data any good at all? Okay, so maybe taking something in there, you mentioned about the data. We do two sorts of surveys. We go out every couple of years and ask several thousand of our customers what they think. Our return rate is probably 10 or 20%. So when we add it all up, we get across Europe, because that's my focus, we get enough get enough to give us a picture. We find out things like, does our delivery performance give people pain? Does our order handling or our quoting give people pain? Where we struggle to get enough data is in a particular country. Because you look at the whole of Europe and you go, oh yeah, you've got plenty of data, Mr. Taylor. And then you divide it down and say, oh, okay, actually for French speaking Belgium, we just don't have enough. We've, we've got some spikes in there. We may have happiness or sadness, but it's not enough. So there's a thing on the volume of data. Perhaps instead of doing an annual survey, is this importance of doing a pulse, taking the customer emotion pulse at the point of time when they're having a particular experience, because it allows you to do two things. It allows you to understand the emotional reaction, which is actually a really important point of CSAT. And we don't discuss that enough and understand that you might have, unlike an average NPS score, you might have points in your journey of failure or delight. 
So back to Simon's point, you know, about the bank and getting a survey, asking you to fill something out, it's asking your customer for time. If it's a simple pulse like we get when we see, we get, well, we used to go through the airport with the green smiley face, amber and red, the traffic light system. If we use that system that's on emails that some banks are now doing, it's very quick and it gives you an instant that issue was resolved. And I think that's much more the way we should be thinking about CSAT now. I, I guess that gets over one of the issues with the data data robustness. I mean, one of the challenges for me, and, and Nick, I totally hear what you say, if you're getting a 20 or 30% response rate, I think that's awesome. I suspect many companies are getting much lower than that. I know certainly of one service business in London that is an authorised reseller and repairer for one of the major tech brands. And they are remunerated according to the number of CSATs that get filled out, which is, of course, completely out of their control. There's a sliding scale. And I think that the response rate probably is around 5%. Now, to me, you can't get any kind of meaningful output from a survey where only 5% of respondents are replying. Does that allow the voice of the customer to come through, Elaine? I'm not sure it does for me. And I think the danger, and whilst I totally get what you're saying, Shane, about taking a pulse, I think you have to be careful about what you read into that. Because if you're asking somebody a simple question, was it good, bad, or okay, uh, you will get a view across the whole experience. What you lose in that is halfway through the experience, there was a major sticking point that I needed a customer service agent who spent 15 minutes with me trying to resolve it. And you'll lose that if we only judge the end outcome. And I think that the volume of data for me is about very having multiple touch points. And I know that takes customer energy and effort. But if you can find a way of capturing that, as we do, um, along the journey as it happens, so it's almost seamlessly captured for the customer. And it happens at the moment that the experience happens, not post-purchase, you'll get a different view of the world. And actually, you don't need to have thousands and thousands of them because a few will give you enough insight if there's consistency in what you're coming across and finding to be able to dig more deeply. Okay, that's interesting. So, so far, we've been talking about the importance of data robustness, which kind of implies we're talking about quant data and the importance of the response rates with things like uh, generic CSATs and that kind of stuff. But I think we've probably already agreed so far that generic satisfaction surveys are probably a waste of time. Let's move on to qualitative analysis because that's a different matter. And I know, Elaine, that this is something that you feel very strongly about. Indeed, I do, Dom. I think the qualitative insight just brings a richness to the discussion that numbers alone can't bring. I think it's fine to have numbers, but you need something around that to understand because most purchasing decisions, particularly in the consumer world, have some level of feeling or emotion or an attitude that's important to frame the purchase decision. So, you know, am I buying a pair of knickers from M&S or am I buying my wedding lingerie? The product itself is two pairs of knickers, but it might be two different emotional settings. And I need to think about what's the emotion and feeling attached to each of those purchase decisions. If it's an everyday pair of knickers, I might not care about it so much. And it might be quick, colour, size, whatever. But if I'm choosing something for a special occasion, I might want to invest more time in that decision. And therefore, whilst the outcome is the same, I bought two pairs of knickers. It would be different in terms of the way the journey works and my em emotional, attitudinal process along that thought process. And I think if you just look at the function, you miss all of that. And therefore, you need to be considering what happened along the way, 
where is the data gathered? At what point? What message does it tell us? What, what's it sharing? How many of our customers are going through a particular hurdle? How do they feel about it if they hit a hurdle? They might overcome it. And so the outcome tells you that they successfully bought. But whether it was the most painful thing they've ever done and they ranted at their computer for half an hour about it, you've lost completely. And that's where we focus as part of our customer experience audits is we try and gather that insight at the moment that the customer is going through it so that we can feed back warts and all to our clients so they can see and hear the customer's pain and also see and hear their delight when things go well. That really does bring the voice of the customer into, into the boardroom because suddenly you've got a wealth of data which is beyond just numbers. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. Elaine, while you're explaining the importance of understanding behaviour, it made me think of the challenge that Nick and I discussed when we were setting up this podcast, which I'm going to try and summarise, Nick, as this. It's really useful to have data that helps you understand what is happening. Uh, you can get that from spotting correlation patterns in your survey data, obviously, but it won't tell you why something is happening because causality is a lot more difficult. And the challenges marketers face is that their colleagues want to know why, not just what. So, for example, if you've got to try and explain CSATs or NPS to somebody else in the building like the CFO, who's probably more logic-led than psychology-led, how do you go about doing that? How do you explain to someone who doesn't have a natural interest in behavioural economics why people are doing what they're doing? Nick, help me out here. I'm not sure I got the exact answer to the question, but certainly what I do. So we we run our surveys essentially on behalf of our country general managers. They're the ones who, who own the customers and therefore own the, the happiness and the sadness. So what normally happens, because they're busy people, is I, I send a, a report after them that's full of an awful lot of data and some verbatims and some lovely charts and they flip through it and they see that their overall loyalty score or satisfaction score is whatever it is. They then pull out the charts from two years ago. And if it's a better number, they, th- they just get on with their day. And if it's a worse number, they ring me to understand why, because they considered their country organisation has worked hard for the period of time and want to know why is their number go down. So to get to answering your question, I normally say, never mind the number, have you read the verbatims? Because you've got a bundle of data in there, they may have spent $500, they may have spent $50 million. Each of those transactions will be just one line in your survey. You need to read the verbatims because if someone's bothered to respond, bothered to type something in or say it over the phone to the surveyor, then, then they believe it and it, it's real. So read the verbatims, talk to the customer and find out what's behind it and, and don't just rely on the number. So that's what, what we tend to do. So Nick, I think that answers the question beautifully. And it also leads us into another really fascinating area that I know Shane is an advocate for. And that's using social channels to help add context and qualitative flavour to quant data. Shane, how big a part can social play in understanding customer satisfaction? Oh, huge. Uh, Absolutely huge. And I'd echo what Nick says, actually, because it's another sort of verbatim. You know, your, your quotes out on social... Um, what people are saying about you. And interestingly enough, a lot of the work that I've done has shown that the people who are very active about your brand, whether it's B2B or B2C, on social are not 
the ones completing your surveys, um, which is really interesting in itself. Uh, the overlap is tiny. And they are, you know, the verbatim quotes or showing those to your board, so important. So actually, I, I use a technique, and I know Elaine uses this too, uh, which is a sort of a customer journey audit where you, you go through all of the touch points, be they social, be they online, ordering direct, seeing a salesperson. And in effect, you're trying to capture the experience at every point and audit it, if possible, record it, video clip, social clip. And then you've got real evidence to present back to the board. Um, and showing these snippets is so much more powerful. And perhaps the most fun one I ever did was for the um, ECB, English Cricket Board, where they sent me around to watch cricket. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a real cricket nut. I used to play, great fan. So being paid to do this was a fabulous job. But some of the experiences were truly, truly shocking to the extent when we showed the board what they were, there was sort of deathly silence because these video clips, these social clips were, we can't believe this was happening. I think you raise a really good point there, um, Shane, and I remember that project well. It was one that people were desperate to be involved in. <laughs> it's actually hearing and seeing voices and people and remembering that there's a human attached to the data and that we, we go through experiences and many sort of boards will look at the data and go, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. Oh, we know the website was down then. Or yes, there was a problem in our fulfillment service, so we'll excuse ourselves of that issue. But your customers aren't excusing you from that. They're going through the experience. And meanwhile, they're busy shopping elsewhere or going online and buying the same products on Amazon and having it delivered before you've even fixed your website. So there is a drive and a need to understand that your customers have a choice and that actually, if they're unhappy, they will walk. And so you do need to hear their voices. And you can't just look at the data because sometimes you miss that emotion and you miss that engagement. And why are people loyally staying with you or actually just wandering off? If you don't know, you can't fix it. So, Nick, you made reference to kind of the fact that yours is a, a European role. And I'm quite interested in this, the idea of the, if you like, the cultural aspects of surveying, not just the cultural, but even the age. So to give you an example, my poor elderly parents would, would never dream providing any kind of feedback or complain if they received poor service. So they, they simply wouldn't say they're completely resistant to providing feedback, whereas my children will provide feedback all day, every day. So there's a big difference uh, in terms of the amount of feedback you're getting back on an age basis. And I suspect if you were to compare American feedback from the British feedback, you'd see that as Brits, we're generally pretty phlegmatic about things, whereas Americans can be particularly happy. In your experience, how do you, when you're doing those larger scale surveys, take into account the, these other factors, be it age or culture or race or religion or creed or whatever? Uh, quick answer, great question, because it's right in my area of pain, is uh, really carefully. So the, you, you raised the issue of um, Americans behaving a little differently. I, I don't think there are any Americans in the conversation. Um, there may be some listening eventually. So I'll, I'll tread carefully. But yeah, big difference. Um, so to start with um, sort of different perspectives across Europe, anyone that's worked with Dutch people will know they will tell you exactly what they think. Um, whoever's with you, I don't like your shirt, Nick. And that, okay, thanks. They're extremely direct um, and objective, honest, I think reasonable in their feedback about business. 
Brits, um, I'm stereotyping horribly here, but you do you can, you can see it in the numbers and you can see it in the verbatims as well. Um, Brits, yeah, a, a bit more, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all good. We're terribly kind of mellow. As we go further east, um, it seems almost a, a sort of a cultural bonding of the customer and the salespeople. An HQ me has asked the customer something, and that's considered perhaps intruding upon the local relationship. And what we get back is a bland, yeah, everything's good. What, what everything? Yeah, it's all good, all good. And you think, well, we're a big business. We do complicated things. It, it, it doesn't make sense that, that everything is perfect. I, I don't have to name particular countries, but in Eastern Europe, that seems to be a thing. Um, that the, the customer feels very close to the salespeople and isn't going to upset anybody by giving negative feedback. So that's that's a thing. Um, there's another one that I think you and I have discussed sort of along the way is is this the NPS score, which I have a particular hatred for, because I think as a Brit, what, what is it I've got in front of me here to remind me? So if I go for a restaurant meal and I go, yeah, it's pretty good, what would you give it out of 10? Well, I don't know, you know. It's really nice, wasn't it? It's exactly what I expected. It's really nice. Eight out of ten. Well, that, I'm a passive because I'm a Brit. I don't go. That was awesome. And what we see is that the scores from North America, the North American business appears to be doing a better job of satisfying its customer. And I've not yet won the battle with my global marketing friends, uh, for which read Americans, because they see higher numbers. They're, they're saying, yeah, we did a great job. We delivered it on time. So we've got nine and a half. Okay. Well, a a Brit's going to give you six or seven because that's what they expect. Uh, and an anecdote on that was we did a we did a pretty good job for a customer once in Scotland. And I'm I'm famous for being rubbish at accents, but I will do this. Uh, and the Americans heard that the customer was delighted with the installation and got some fabulous results. So they made a video and were terribly disappointed because the Scots gentleman said on camera, "Yeah, it's nice so bad," <laughs> <laughs> which you all get. The Americans were distraught. I was like, he told us this guy was an absolute fan. I said, he, he loves the stuff. Nasa Bad would be like two and a half on the MPS school. So anyway, so that's a, yeah, very different feelings uh, and different behaviours and different, if you only read the numbers. The verbatims, you get the information. The Russian will give you something straight in the verbatims, but they'll, they'll give you numbers that suggest everything's perfect. So as Nick says, I think it's such a valuable point to really understand the culture um, and the context, really, of all customer experience. I'm a particular fan of using social listening for overlaying to things like the NPS score. And in fact, there's now an organisation, Brandwatch, who do this. They bring together social sentiment with NPS to give you another lens um, to what your customers are saying about you and how fascinating it is that it's not just by country, but also by different geo-demographic groups, socio-demographic groups, that they have very different ways of interpreting the score. What kind of size of company might be using that degree of sophistication to understand their customers? So at the moment, it's very much the large consumer brands, the likes of Nike and others uh, who are using it to understand 
the real sort of depth of sentiment about their customers. But I think it's going to move into the B2B world too. So, because I find that, I find that really interesting that, you know, I started out this whole podcast saying basically NPS and customer surveys are garbage, which, you know, is a nice provocative place to start, obviously. But as, as we've gone through and we've picked up more and more information, um, and the, this podcast is going to be literally twice as long as I wanted it to be, but there's so much good content. I think it's a really exciting space, this, and I can't believe there aren't more people like purely dedicated to it, or are they, and do I just not know them? I think it's a really good point, actually. I think it's a very fragmented market. Um, customer experience typically has come out from customer service with very particular customer touch points, and there's lots of companies specialising in those individual touch points, like, um, for example, the insight that comes through call centers, amazing data, fantastic. But that's not joined up to the whole customer journey. And what we really need, and I think there's an amazing opportunity to your point, Dom, is to have a way of understanding experience across the whole journey from beginning to end and that's where nps fails you i agree with you i think you know you are being controversial as you always are brilliantly in your podcast but actually um it is something that i think lots of people are thinking about now fabulous thank you shane now simon talking about amazing experiences i think you had an interesting anecdote about a not so amazing customer experience that actually cost someone their business my late parents who had a great friend who invested a lot of money in a, in a restaurant in Surrey, subsequently went out of business because nobody would actually tell him that the roles that he served were stale. And, and every time he asked the customers what they thought about the roles, he would, they would be told they were fantastic. In fact, they were completely stale. And as a result, they went left the restaurant and told all their friends not to go there with the, with the result the poor man went out of business. And, and, you know, as British, we've really got to get over you know, the Americans would say we've got to get over ourselves, but we've got to start to be a little bit more. Uh, we've got to understand that feedback is good. Yeah, and and it's an interesting one because I think if you had a microphone at the table, you'd have heard the 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 customers sitting in there grumbling and mumbling about the uh, the staleness of the bread rolls. But having the gumption to tell the owner who asked perhaps a direct question as was everything okay, we're probably too terrified to say, uh, yeah, no, there was a problem with the rolls. But we and we all sit there and trot out, yeah, no, it was absolutely lovely. Thank you very much. And then we walk out the door going, we'd never go again, which is why it's important to try and capture what's going on in the moment. Um, so, we, so look, let's just assume, let's take it as read, testing is a good thing. When is the best time to test? Elaine? All the time is the right time to test. Don't wait until everything is perfect. The number of clients I've met who've said, we really want you to do one of your audits for us, but we just want to fix this before, we, before you do. And it never quite gets fixed or it takes a bit longer and then another fire pops up somewhere else and they want to fix it. There's no point auditing it if you think it's perfect. You need to learn along the way. And there will be some fires burning in the business that you just haven't spotted. So actually get them out on the table because your customers may think that problem A is bigger than the problem that you're trying to busily fix. So I would say it's a, it should be an ongoing pulsing of your customers. Get a feel for it. And don't just take one number and look at it once a year. It should be something that should be continuously in your boardroom discussions. Customers are important. Without them, businesses don't exist. Well, folks, there you have it. Our huge thanks to Shane Redding, Nick Taylor and Elaine Lee. You can find out more about them and their businesses and even find them on LinkedIn by going to marketingtrek.co.uk. Now, I started this podcast as a sceptic, but I'm ending it wanting to find out more. 
I still think the idea of NPS on its own is overrated and that we're probably all over-surveyed, but I do really like the idea of constant testing. And I can see that investing more in listening, well, that's a good investment. Speaking of which, thank you for the time you've invested listening to us today. We know time is precious and there are lots of podcasts out there. This has been a special edition of Marketing Trek and we'll be kicking off season two with the regular cast soon. Now, you can subscribe to our podcast by going to marketingtrek.co.uk or finding us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Podchaser, iHeartRadio, Deezy, YouTube, you name it. Any good podcast outlet. Simply search for Marketing Trek and hit the subscribe button. We'd also be extremely grateful for full and frank feedback. So if you think the show is worth five stars, please look us up on Apple Podcasts, rate us and review us. Whereas if you think we're a measly 5 out of 10, must try harder, please let us know. You can find us on LinkedIn and connect to us there. I am Dominic Hawes, he is Simon Quarrenden, and we are both listed as working for Selby Anderson because we do. Marketing Trick is brought to you by Selby Anderson.